Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Welcome to The Evolver, sponsored by The Alchemist Kitchen, hosted by Ken Jordan. Everyone wakes up in her or his own way. It can happen in a meditation, light emerging from total silence. It can strike as an angelic vision of unfathomable beauty, following an ayahuasca purge into a cheap plastic bucket. For me, it happened by simply walking out the front door of a house in Berkeley one spring afternoon and discovering that plants speak. Today, so many people are having their crack-in-the-sky moment in so many ways. But then what? That first glimpse of something more happens between you, alone, and the divine. Then comes the real challenge. How do you live that awareness, hold on to it while the connection is still tenuous, and allow it to change you? That change happens best when you have others you can share your process with, through words or over a sympathetic cup of tea, or maybe with just a timely hug. It happens best, in short, in community. That shared space helps to validate what might otherwise feel like a one-shot, bizarro hallucination that has no context and that defies rational judgment. It's so important to know that you can kick off your shoes and lay on the floor with a couple of other people who know what you mean when your explanations fade into silence. They can tell from the look in your eyes. One of the most vibrant, innovative, and long-lived transformational communities on the East Coast is the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, or, as it is known by its acronym, COSM, which revolves around the visionary art of painters Alex and Allison Gray. Currently located about two hours north of New York City along the Hudson River, 1,500 feet from the Hudson, I was told, in the town of Wappingers Falls, COSM has had previous lives in other locations, but it has always been a community where the psychedelic approach to the visionary experience is honored and supported, and the role of creativity and transformation is given pride of place. Cosm is a shining example of what the artist Joseph Boys called a social sculpture, a collaborative group activity that manifests a shared opportunity for transformation by shifting the consciousness of the participants. As we look ahead to how our whole society needs to be transformed to get us out of the mess we're in, and new kinds of spiritual communities are emerging as an alternative to traditional religions, Cosm is an example we can all learn from. Many people in the Evolver, Burning Man, Maps, psychedelic science world have connected to Cosm. They know and love the paintings by Alex and Allison, but they may not be aware of the artful intention and commitment that it has taken to conceive of and manifest that very special sanctuary for the visionary. In today's episode, I talk with Cosm's head witch and den mother, Allison Gray, about how she approaches her art as a form of service to others. She speaks directly to what it takes to create and nurture a community devoted to spiritual ideals as a form of art. Cosm is actually incorporated as an interfaith art church, 
and they are in the process of building a temple, a visionary art temple called Entheon, which we talk about as well. We also discuss Allison's paintings of secret and sacred language. Allison Gray received an MFA from Tufts University, and she has long been an arts educator, arts organizer, and muse to artists worldwide. Together, Allison and Alex have painted on stage in dozens of cities before thousands of dancing young people at festivals and arenas across five continents, including Broadway theaters in New York City. As longtime advocates of cognitive liberty, a growing international sacramental culture has embraced the Greys as mapmakers and spokespersons for the visionary realm. Now, please join me as we go to church. I mean, psychedelic art church. Evolver is the proud parent of the Alchemist Kitchen, a botanical dispensary dedicated to the healing power of plants. At the Alchemist Kitchen, we work with the finest herbalists who are producing high-quality botanical medicines, herbal remedies, and whole plant beauty products. We're now entering the season of the witch, a celebration of the feminist, counter-mainstream witch movement. The Alchemist Kitchen believes in the demystification of the witch and sees this archetypal figure as an essential part of our ethos. We see the good witch as integral to this mission. Beyond the natural healer, the witch represents divine femininity, the wild woman, and the mystic. We strive to both defend this energy and encourage people to tap into their inner magic. We invite you to join us this season by attending events at our different locations, checking out our blog, shopping on our site, reading our season of the witch zine, browsing our social media for witch tips and tricks, and today we kick off the series with our conversation with Alison Gray. In the coming weeks, we'll be posting episodes with other inspirational witches, including Kim Kranz, Robin Rose Bennett, Pam Grossman, and Starhawk. So watch for those shows. You can learn more at our website, thealchemistkitchen.com. There's an S in the middle there. Or stop by our flagship at 21 East 1st Street in Manhattan between Bowery and 2nd Avenue. The Witch in Us celebrates the Witch in You. We're in the studio that is in your studio, which is where you paint and live and sleep in Cosm. At Cosm, that's right. On the campus. You have a number of different buildings here. That's right. But this is the Inner Sanctum. Well, this this campus, 40-acre campus of Cosm, came with six buildings and a barn. And where we are now was a, a log cabin that housed like 40 kids any day during the week. It was a uh, Bible camp. We bought it from the United Church of Christ. And they used it as a recreational sort of retreat for young people primarily, but also like corporate and things like that. So they rented it out to Bible school for all the Protestant churches around here. The the United Church of Christ is a very radically welcoming Christian sect. Obama goes to the United Church of Christ, and so does Oprah. So it's incredibly, you know, civil rights oriented in the 50s and 60s, and they were very into integration. And and this place just has filled with love. You just feel that. And this was... 
being used by religious institutions That's before right. you arrived. And you brought a church. And you we, brought your a church, own bought church. it from a church because that's the way you have to do it. If you're a church, you can't really sell for profit. You Turning it over to another church is a really good way to go. Did that play a role in how you got this place? It was magical. Tell me And I just have to say, the vision of building a temple started in 1985 when Alex and I first t- took MDMA. We were lying on our bed and we simultaneously had the vision of building a temple. We thought that the most enduring spiritual work of art that any artist could create would be a sacred site, a sacred place, like a church or a you know, the Sistine Chapel, for instance, that kind of thing. So we thought that's what we should do. It could be our life's work to build a sacred temple of visionary sacred art. And this is a vision you had simultaneously. In 1985 on MDMA. It was our first MDMA experience. It was legal at the time, and it was gifted to us by a collector who wanted to buy the sacred mirrors. And he had already drawn up the contract. We were ready to receive the more money than we had ever been offered for anything in our life. And we took this MDMA that he gave us, and we realized that we could not sell them, that we had to keep them, to have them in in the public view, to offer them as a public offering. The, the sacred mirrors, 21 paintings. They are. They're, tw- they're actually 19 paintings and two etched mirrors. The material world and the spiritual world are etched mirrors. They're at the beginning, the end of the series. And then the uh, 19 paintings by Alex. And Alex was just saying before that, you know, he painted the paintings, but the concept came from you and the name came from you. Well, you know, Alex and I have shared a studio for 43 years, okay? When we first got together, and I mean like within 10 days, we were building a loft. We were both leaving school, and Alex had found this loft, and he invited me to participate in it, and we both sunk all of our money and time and energy and physical work into building a raw loft into this beautiful 2,000-square-foot honeymoon home that we lived in for the first nine years of our relationship. In Manhattan. In Boston. In in downtown Boston, because I was getting my master's degree at the museum school and Tufts, and Alex had was taking his senior year as an independent study. He was just gonna paint as much as he could in this loft. He was gonna sink everything into it and paint. And he painted the gray paintings, which nobody has seen. So it'll it'll be an interesting reveal really one day. The gray paintings. Nobody has seen them. No. So Bob body of work that Alex did when we were first together, the gray paintings, one of them will be in the Entheon exhibition. But one day, they'll all be shown. But they, when probably when we're both dead. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, those are, are the earliest them? paintings. Yeah. Uh. Well, these were paintings of Alex's performances. And uh, then when we got together, we began performing together. And we did a performance called Life Energy. And the performance Life Energy was in a gallery in 1977. And the result of that performance, I won't, I can describe it to you, but I don't have to describe it to you. But the thing that really came out of it was the sacred mirrors, because that's when I told Alex he should do the sacred mirrors. It was <laughs> so, on the bridge as we left the gallery, feeling like we had not had a great performance, that this performance was not among our best performances. And I said, 
Alex, the, the people really like the charts that you created. You should create these full life size, like, you know, body, mind, and soul paintings of, you know, the physical. Because I knew that's what he could do. I knew he could do that. So that's what I want to ask is because one of the amazing things about those paintings, yes, there's an anatomical aspect to it. He's a medical illustrator. He studied that. But there's also this representation of energetic flow of subtle energies. That's right. Well, that comes from our experience of, 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 of LSD, psilocybin. At the time, I think it was primarily LSD, but I know that that's where his inspiration, you know, and my, our inspiration, I mean, my paintings. At a certain point, you know, in, in 1976, June 3rd, we had a LSD experience where we both realized that our art would best serve people by being about the psychedelic experience, by by turning those visions that we had in our psychedelic experience into art. So our art changed. I mean, my art changed dramatically too. And uh, in the show at Entheon, I'm only going to show the work in, in the galleries that is the work that I did after that change. And uh, since I've been sharing a studio with Alex. So I want to ask you about that idea. Okay. That art should serve others. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Which, you know. It's not, yeah. That was not a popular thought back in the 70s. And to this day, most fine artists wouldn't come to their work through that lens, right? I'm wondering how you came to that. Psychedelics. Because psychedelics and and MDMA, those sorts of uh, experiences open your heart. And you realize that as an artist, you, you are, you know, so gifted to be an artist, if you know that that's who you are, that you feel like a sense of responsibility, I think, to uh, offer something of value to the world. Well, look, everybody wants the same thing, I think. They want to be creative, and they want to do what they love, and they want to make a great living from it. You know, they, that they, oh, you man. Know, everybody yes. I everybody know wants, wants that. that. Okay. I would like that too. All right. We all want so we're we're headed in that direction. No heading in that direction. Mm-hmm. You know, you know that a creative life. If I think most people would say that a creative life is what they really desire, and so whatever it is, I mean, you know, you put more creativity into it. You know, when you're doing the, you know, you're 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 working at Best Buy. You know, you come home, get out the paint. You know, whatever it is, get out the drum set, get out the piano lessons, put your plug in and get a, get a keyboard, whatever it is, practice, be creative, put creativity into your life and it'll be more juicy. It just will. Yeah, but your service. This but is then the there's thing. the service. service. Okay, so because, I mean, that way that you started thinking about art in the 70s, I mean, this informs everything you guys have done right down to the creation of Cosm as, you know, an epicenter for a whole visionary art community of people who are connecting to spirit through the through art and psychedelics. And you were providing a place where so many people can come through, connect with each other, connect with the visionary. And many artists beyond you two guys have their work presented through this whole thing that you guys have created, that you have yeah. developed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so much of that service, I mean, I think of it, you even said, I think over tea or something, I think of the Absolutely Joseph Boy's mm-hmm. social sculpture. Mm-hmm. Yes. What is a social sculpture? 
Well, Joseph Boys did coin that phrase, and uh, to us, Cosm is a social sculpture. It's a collaborative work of art uh, by a community, founded by two artists. So, you know, there's no doubt about that our vision leads because we're still alive and we're still leading. But yeah, you've got 27 yeah. people on staff here. I was just talking yes, to a guy yes, who cooks do. for you guys, for, least, for, the, yeah. for the group uh, <laughs> every day. I was talking to the... To the to Three the, meals a day. We have food for people, though, to serve others. Listen, it's a great honor to be able to provide a container for creative uplifting. Okay? People here are uplifted. They find love. They have a place where they can go with their hungry soul just to feel connected with other people who are good-spirited and have good intentions, that, they, that it raises your entire being to a higher level of expectation of yourself. You know what I mean? To be living in a temple like we do has, has made us better people, and anybody who lives in a temple I think becomes better people. So part of the art that you have been doing yeah. is this community building. Oh, totally. That's my. That's one of my two bodies of work. Alex and I, between us, have three bodies of work. There's Alex's art, his writing, and his sculpture. And then there's my art, my th- painting, um, which is, you know, watercolors, acrylics, and oils. I have all three of those within the uh, painting. But then there is Cosm, our social sculpture that Alex and I co-created, co-founded, became a nonprofit in 1996 and an interfaith art church in 2008, recognized by all. And we have a, you know, we have a responsibility to serve, but we made it that way. We wanted it to be that way because it's the one way that people can gift a loving, heart-centered community. We wanted to gift the sacred mirrors to the love tribe. So this hit you when you were on that MDMA trip and you had that vision. Yeah. At the same time, did you perceive a community when you perceived the temple? No, not at all. I think that for so many years, blind as we were, we looked for land with a house on it. We knew we wanted to live there, you know what I mean? But we didn't like think about, and you know, it was in 2002 that our shaman, Alex Stark, a a Yale architect, a brilliant uh, shaman. I'm sorry, unpack that for a moment. Okay, so Alex Stark is a shaman who's an architect who's went to Yale and he was in our class and he said, you ought to start the full moon ceremonies. You've been talking about having this uh, chapel of sacred mirrors since, you know, since I've known you. He knew us from way back when, probably around, you know, the early 90s. And uh, he said, you know, we're going to start the full moon ceremonies in your home. We're going to do a despacho, which we did at the first full moon ceremony, January 2003. And a despacho is? Oh, a despacho is like... It's a package. You put all sorts of things in it. You put gems and sacrament and hair and food and, you know, dried fish and fur of deer and, you know, all that stuff. You put everything in there and everybody gives it a prayer and they they back it up and the shaman takes it away. He either buried it or he burned it. I don't know. But he did it in his own special ritual. He prayed over it. He sprayed whiskey over it. You know how they do. And waved 
there's feathers in there. Anyway, the despacho, that was, that was the first full moon ceremony. And that became public in April of that year, four months later. I just got to ask, I mean, he was trained as a shaman in some lineage? He or is he just- a very well-respected shaman. I don't know what he provides today, because it's been many years since we've really been together, but he provides geomancy services. He will he will diagnose your land, for instance. He did that for us, and he's flown all over the world to do that. He may lead ceremony, too, as far as I know, but I don't know that. I don't know that. I wouldn't want to say that. And so he was an old friend. You were already... He was, yes. He came to be in our class, this Yale graduate. I couldn't believe how brilliant he was. Came to be in our class at Omega in the early 90s when we started teaching Oh, when our, he came to your class. I mean, he was a student was of a yours student. in a class. We met some of the most incredible geniuses and brilliant artists in our class at Omega. I can just tell you that. So tell me about that. 28 years, Alex and I have been teaching one course a year at Omega. It's called uh, the Visionary Art Intensive. It's the five-day visionary art immersion for artists and non-artists and people who want to be artists who might be artists. It's all levels and we do wonderful things together. Uh, It's like a big, you know, retreat for artists to experience uh, visions and get them out on paper. So you were doing this at Omega, I'm assuming beginning to build a a kind of informal network or community of of graduates of that. Well, Alex has always been invited to speak. So wherever we would go, and I say we because, you know, I always helped. Alex was the front man for a lot of years. Now we we do it together, but we always had a part that talked about our project Cosm. Chapel of Sacred Mirrors was part of our slide talk wherever we went, you know, the poetry science talks, the, uh, you know, University of Illinois, you know, at Normal. I mean, wherever Alex was speaking, we would like have our show and then he would like always represent, you know, Cosm. So I have a a tacky question to ask. Did you keep the mailing list? Oh God, always. We were very aware. And Alex, his awareness of PR you know, was really useful in our work. But I also worked in PR. I was the executive director of the Art Directors Club. I was an employee in four different jobs at the Brockton Art Museum when I was very young. I worked for the Boston Visual Artists Union. So as a an artist, you have to ride more than one horse. You have to, I was home painting every day. I had two galleries in Boston, but I also had to have a job. So my job was more like, organizing and the art business. It's always been, you know, sort of focused around. I did a lot of teaching early on too, but I I really liked the art business. And uh, so I worked in that and I helped Alex then. Then when we moved to New York nine years later, we went into business together. We both had separate jobs when we were in Boston for nine years. And then I went into business with Alex all those years ago. And we've put our money, we put all our money together in 1977. We've never had... uh, you know, separate studios, so. He really was not embraced by the mainstream fine arts, you know, community. He had some galleries too, though. I think both of us have veered toward sort of autonomy, like just just sort of designing and developing our own art careers rather than following that model. I think that's true. Part of why, you know, neither one of us have galleries is because we just sell everything ourselves, you know. Well, now you can. And galleries... 
we've been doing that for quite a while. I mean, you start making posters and you start making paintings and people come into your studio. A lot of artists don't do that. If they do that, then they then they give up the possibility of having... Galleries don't really want to, uh, you know, you've got to double the price. Well, you yeah, know? So right. the galleries you, can yeah. take their 50%. Well, so. there's a fork in the road moment where you basically decide which you way do you want to go. something if you don't have galleries, though. But I think we're making up for it, and I don't think it's much of a sacrifice. It seems like you're you, doing way better in many yeah. ways because of that, because you're able to reach so many people with the reproductions, and there's a popular... It's true. Popular it, ground, you know, grassroots... Far and wide, I think that that is something that we're really, really good at, and it's really something that we we've, we we want to do better at, even. But we 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 strive for is the wider market, like more friends. That's our that's our uh, you know New Year's resolution every year: make more friends. And when you talk about the service aspect of the work you do, so much of it is around sharing a vision. That's right. Alex says once you get the poster you get a worldview. And so we're trying to put out a worldview that is beautiful and uplifting and, and a beacon rather than, you know, the portal of doom and darkness where we know that exists in the world. We want to be the place of light. So in 2002, you mm. did the first, cause, full first, first full moon ceremony. It, for 2003, January 2003. We are about to, I think we're approaching our 199th full moon ceremony this coming weekend. Wow. Yeah, I've got to check my numbers, but I think that's what it is. Unbroken chain for 16 years, almost. It'll be 16 years in December. You know, so in December. many thousands of people have come through these. Yeah, tens of thousands. Tens yeah. of thousands. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we want to be as open as we can be, and we're not nearly as open as we're going to be. When mm -hmm. we open Entheon, you know, yeah. that is like a logarithmic opening toward community uh, sharing of, of the visionary. So at that first one, did you feel community then? Did you start to notice something as a possibility? Because, okay, I am, among many ridiculous things I've done in my life, I've been a kind of community organizer. You have. You definitely have. And so I understand a little bit of what goes into developing and maintaining and growing a community, a group of people who come back regularly, oh, yeah. how you cultivate that, how you work with all the different personalities involved, how you allow for certain things to happen that may not be your favorite things to have happen. And at the same time, how you convince people to come back when they're maybe not really feeling it that day. Doesn't it make you a better person? Don't you think that it has made you a better person? All of that rubbing up against your your bristles, you know what I mean? Everything that makes you bristle, it gets rubbed and you just get smoother and like it's and, and you can make anything be okay kind of thing. You just like, you know that there well, life is filled with our pictures. We have these pictures of the way things are supposed to be. And then there's reality. And that's how it really is, the be here now of it all. And so you just you just have to realize, oh, yeah, that was a picture of the way it was supposed to be. This is really the way it is and the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, if every guru who ever lived and ever walked the earth has said anything, said anything, it was that every moment is perfect. It's perfect in the now, but every moment is perfect. So if it feels imperfect when it feels not at all perfect, you have to look for the perfection in it. You say, like, well, how could this be perfect? How could this be perfect? Well, it must be perfect in some way. 
I'm quadriplegic now. I'm supposed to be doing something else. <laughs> well, I guess one way to look that's at hard to, it's, that's a hard one. <laughs> no, it is very hard. I mean, but but isn't that the, the that's task? It. That's though? it. That's if it. If you're going to have yeah. a beautiful life that you love and you mm -hmm. have a have a misfortune, you just have to see how this has to be yeah. the direction that you're meant to go in. So you must have had this moment when folks started showing up at your place in Brooklyn. <laughs> That's right. Every month. Oh, more and more. And you started to go, you know what? I can do something with this. Okay, well, let me tell you what happened. The fourth month, April, on Easter morning, and I know this sounds absurd, but it's true. Easter morning, Robbie Wutan came to our loft. Robbie Wutan's an amazing person. He was uh, philanthropically really asking us if we would like to take some raw space on his fourth floor because he was going to open a club on the first floor called Spirit New York. And so he wanted the sacred mirrors there. That's really what he wanted. We weren't going to put it in his smoky club, but we would create a space with the money we had raised from Cosm which had been nonprofit since 1996. So we had been saving money, not really spending it. We had other, our other business, A Gray Company, which was our everything else we did. But this was our nonprofit. So we would put money in there and we raised enough money to build out this 12,000 square foot floor on 27th Street. It cost us a quarter of a million dollars and we put everything into it. Two galleries, a store, a big, big dance studio for Gabrielle Roth and for our parties. Our offices, our shipping, everything was there. So it was wonderful. And we had a five-year lease with Robbie. He made it very affordable for us to invest our money in this floor because he knew he was giving us nothing. There was nothing. We put in bathrooms, everything. So we put it in. We 12,000 square feet. Yeah, we were grateful to have it. It's and it a was, huge place in it Manhattan. Was, it was the whole floor. We couldn't let anybody else be there because on every other floor they were serving alcohol and they were all having shootings. I mean, I'll just it's all closed now. I can say this. Every floor had deaths and except ours. It was very high energy. And every night I would come out and I'd think, this is not where we belong. This is not permanent. This is our living brochure. This is what we want to bring people in and say, this is kind of like what we want to do. But we knew that our mission was to build an enduring sanctuary, a visionary art to uplift a global community. So we had to build. So, we couldn't build anything enduring in a rented floor on 27th Street. But you went from thinking, I'm going to build a space right. to I'm creating a community. Well, the and community was already forming after the first full moon. By the third, fourth, fifth full moon, we had 225. That was our max. That was fast. And we had, we oh yeah, we maxed out, like doubled almost so every how, time. So who were those people? Where did they come from? I mean, were they? Uh, well, at the time, I think most of them came from the boroughs. By 2003, there was internet. So we had a website. The first three we did in our home with just our friends. It all started at a party that we gave in December. We gave a party for 50 friends. Re Stefan Reckstoffen from Omega was there, and, and so was Elizabeth Lesser and her husband. People came from California. People came from London. We gave this dinner at the Tibet house. Alex had a big show there, and we made it into a meeting. We catered it. We invited our 50 you know, the 50 people that we knew knew about our project and would make be supporters, you know, and they all came. All 50 people that we invited came, I swear to you. It was amazing. 
they all came together and we, we, we did a talk and we had a meeting and we, we made people sign up for committees about the chapel of sacred meetings. How are we going to do this? Well, the only committee that, that, that lasted was the prayer committee that was led by Alex Stark and two other members. One of them is still a board member. Eileen Rose and our friend John Lloyd and the, the those people and Marie Elizabeth Mundheim who was a board member for many years they made the prayer committee happen so we met with those people and their friends and our friends and a few other people about 15 people January of 2003 and that was the first one and those people stuck by us and with us for many years but they've moved on many of them except Rosie who we've known for 28 years and she still comes to everything up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com And what was the mandate of the prayer committee? Okay, so the prayer committee was going to start the full moon ceremonies. And we were going to pray for a community to gather together to build a temple. Because Alex Stark said, temple building is the work of a community. Where is your community? That's exactly what he said. And there's the root of what you're asking. Because he said that. He said, where's your community? Well, we did bring 50 people together that wanted a chapel. They were from all over the planet. But it was really amazing that they would come just to hear us talk about it. And so then when you heard that, yeah, that obviously struck a chord. You went like, oh man, I got a new project. Well, people wanted it. It was obvious. The Tibet House show was the signal because Alex started doing a talk. He would do a walk around the Tibet House. He would do a tour of the Tibet House. He started where he could take as many as 45 people, and he ended up having to do two tours a week for free. He was just... And you know the woman downstairs, I'm just telling you this, who paints those little MakerBot toys? You know who I'm talking about? Those little toys that are over there? She came to every one of those tours. Brilliant. She's been with us for over 15 years. Wow. Yeah. So, so you're seeing and feeling the community as an extension of your work. You're oh, yeah. seeing it as a creation. Oh, yeah. There's the art, and then there's the place, and then there's the people. There's a culture yes. that emerges, a way of talking about spirit, a way of talking about the psychedelic experience and what that means for transforming. I just wanted to back up way, way up and say, I was the chairman of my, of my high school prom. And guess what our theme was? Oh God, what? Psychedelic. No. Maybe it was 1969. (laughs) I have been an organizer of experiences. I've loved art as an experience. I've loved art as collaboration. You know, the prom was no different. The banquet at this 
place or that place was no different. The, the you know, like creating an environment in, in a container in which people have an experience. That's something that's always been my art. In fact, I have to say, Alex and I met at the museum school in a very forward-thinking class called Conceptual Mixed Media. It was based on concepts and any material you wanted to make it in, it could be made in. So that's mixed media. So my material that I was making art in when I met Alex was environmental art. And Alex's art was really performance art. And we came together and we created performance installations together uh, for years until we did the Life Energy performance. And then this Sacred Mirrors is an installation in every way, okay? It's something we've been designing together for decades for our whole life is to create the ultimate experience and installation for people to experience Alex's art, my art, and visionary artists. That's really what we wanted to do. How would you describe the difference between doing that kind of organizing as a job or as a political project and as an, a way of making art, as art? How do you position yourself differently? Well, as, as, a, as, the, as the executive director of the Art Directors Club, I, cre- I organized five design shows that were you know thousands of people and, and, and thousands of entries from all of everywhere. So that's administrative. So, but no, but I, I learned from that. I learned how to put it all together, but that doesn't mean that I'm good at, I have to give it away to 28 other people around here to, to make it all happen. But it was a cr- tremendous learning of, of like, you know, how to create an experience for people. My guess would be that there's something that makes it artful when the heart is involved in a different way. Oh, yeah. When the intention is involved oh, in a yeah. different way. Um, when there's a mission associated with it, it has to do with something that's not just monetary or just political. When you're doing it for somebody else, you, you, you feel heartful about it. I love those people. But you also realize that you're, you're there to learn and move on. I mean, I never felt like I was there, you know, as a lifer at that job. Now, some people do. They get into community. They find this is our, this is my community. I could have done that. This is my community. This is the one I'm going to stick by. And I love these people. And I did love them. But I, I knew, I feel like I was called to, you know, be in business for myself and Alex and I together because my parents were in business together. And it just called me to do that. That's funny because I just assumed it was like the John and Yoko paradigm. Oh really? Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, yeah. I mean, Yoko Which I was love a great respect, artist. Yeah. She really was a great artist, and way less understood and celebrated than than her beloved. You know, but still, I feel that they they made an incredible pair. I mean, they oh, yeah. they were an incredible power pair. And too bad they didn't get uh, you know forty three years together in the same studio. I'm I'm telling you, it's transformative. It's it's been amazing to be uh, Alex's partner all these years, and you know made us both better people. Do you see your partnership also as a form of art, as an artful is, expression? Of course, of course. But relationship is beyond that. It's so beyond that. You know what I mean? It goes to the core of the kind of person that you are and want to be. Because they want you to be all that you want to be, if they're any kind of good person. You know what I mean? Alex is such a good person. He wants me to be all I can be. And I feel the same way about him. That's the way to have a, a you know, 
But the way to have an enduring relationship, in case anybody is wondering, is choose wisely and stop choosing. That's it. That's the recipe. You just stop choosing. After that, it's it's negotiating and working on yourself and working on each other and whatever. I think it's simpler for some people than for others. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, maybe it is. I don't know. I think it's different amounts of simple and hard. I mean, we make it either easy or hard, don't we? Yeah, for sure. So you were at the building on 27th Street. Oh, yeah, there we were. Because I want to get to this incredible location up here. Oh, yeah. How did you find well, this place? when we got the there, church. we knew we had a five-year lease. So we knew that we better, once we built it and we got the formats down and we were starting to make money, which we were, once we opened a store, you know, we were doing great. And we started thinking we ought to start looking because we knew that the five-year lease was up and that the building was for sale for $30 million. So we knew we are not going to be allowed to stay in this building after our lease or it's going to be so expensive, we're not going to... I knew that we were not in the right place there. Every day I'd walk out and see the mounted police and oh, that yeah. craziness on the street, and I knew that we needed to move to a more tranquil environment. But we had really made a place for ourselves in the middle of the club district and the gallery district. It was awesome to have that. We had famous people come in, you know, because it was the middle of New York City and becoming Chelsea at the end of the High Line. You know, it was really a hot spot at the perfect time for us. Who do you remember coming in? Well, we had we had uh, Woody Harrelson, we had we had uh, Michael Ferrante, we had Shirley MacLaine, we had you know the first person that came in that we couldn't believe we were meeting was Lavar Burton. Do you really? remember Lavar Burton? Yeah, Reading Rainbow. But before reading Rainbow, he was Kunta Kinte from Roots. Yeah. And he also was in Star Trek. Right. And he came, he was called into our building. He said, because he was kind of psychic. And he said he was called. He had no idea what we were. Saw our sign outside. We had a cute little sign. He had nothing else doing on the street. He came upstairs, came into the Chapel Sacred Mirrors, looked at the Cosmic Christ painting and saw himself portrayed in that painting. Star Trek and Roots. You know, where's Waldo? You'll come and see the, the But that's good. See. So the painting actually called him he off the street so he can see himself. He called him in. That is yeah. nuts. So anyway, we had a lot of wonderful people. And it was, it was you know, fairly centrally located. I mean, it probably took us as long to get from Brooklyn over to Chelsea as it takes us to get from Brooklyn up to here, practically. <laughs> this is not too far from the city, really. And, you know, and it's gorgeous up here. And you got, as you were saying, you got 40 acres. Oh, oh well, so we started looking and we, we, you know, we we went to this one location. It was an old Italian retreat center in Greene County. It was in the middle of fucking nowhere. And there was no public transportation for miles around. And we got to this old retreat center. It was gorgeous. It was like 70 some acres, two ponds, rushing streams. But there were all these old decrepit buildings. But as we walked into the driveway, there was a dead deer sitting, I mean, like right on the asphalt, right in the driveway, right as you got off the road with like buzzing insects in their eyes. And we just walked around it, you know, and we saw the place and it looked like it was really diseased. Everything needed to be mowed down, but the property was absolutely gorgeous, big and affordable. But it was in the middle of nowhere. So when we got back to home, Alex looked for retreat centers in, 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 uh, for sale. 
he went to findthedivine.com. I'm sorry, what is that? Findthedivine.com, retreat centers for sale. Oh my God. So that's, it was, there was only one piece of property available on the East Coast. The entire East Coast. Everything else was like, there was Canada, there was Montana, and there was the Southwest, there was even Midwest. Nothing. This place, that's it. And we came up here almost immediately. And when we drove up to it, guess what was in the middle of the driveway as we, I'm not kidding you either. As we came in, this place was called Deer Hill Conference Center. had Deer Hill right at the end of the road. And we came in the driveway, and there were turkeys mating in the driveway. They were doing a circle dance around each other in the middle of the driveway. I'm telling you, we've seen it again, and they don't care if you see them. They just don't even move. You go like, hey, this is my kind of place. So these these turkeys are mating in our driveway. It was like the other one was like, no, go to Deer Hill, you know? And it was like the the, the insects were telling us. So anyway, we came here. (laughs) We came up the driveway. And you know what it is? It's, It's the... It's just the, it's the entrance. It feels so, we go past farms to get here. Our neighbors, Alex and Allison Reese. No. Own the farms around here. That's bizarre. Three, three farms around our property are Alex and Allison Reese's farms. And they are our sacred mirrors, clearly. Clearly. <laughs> so like these omens, I'm serious. Like omens come to you. And uh, we bought it on September 12th, 2008 two days before the major real estate crash too, which was interesting. But I, I really feel that this was our place and there was no other place. And we, like I say, we bought it from a church. So we got it for their asking price. That's it. They wanted that because that's all they could prove that they spent on the place. Otherwise, they, they were gifted it. You see, the United Church of Christ was gifted this place in 1959. Whoa, really? By, the, by a private family who owned that big house. And so they're not allowed to, like, gouge. Make money. No, if they do make money, they can make money, but they have to give it all away. Okay, so you go to the United Church of Christ and you say, okay, we have the psychedelic church based on these really crazy paintings. We didn't say that. No, you didn't say that? Of course not. Oh. But you know what we did do? We invited them to come to the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors in the city. Our living brochure. They came. And they came and we invited Alex Reese to come mm-hmm. and he came. Oh, yeah. And so they all said, okay. They all said, okay. They all, I mean, the truth is they the United actually, Church yeah. of Christ was had a few other offers over seven year period. They had not been able to sell the place since 9-11-2001. See, 9-11, all of their kids that were coming up here, like our daughter was one of them, her school came up here. She went to Berkeley Carroll School in, in Brooklyn and they had three retreats a year here. It's only 65 you, miles from the city. Wait a minute, you knew the place. F- no, no, but I found that out. You mean your Zena daughter came? Said, she Z- said, I've been to Deer Hill Conference Center. This is where we used to come for retreats. That's So all crazy. the boys' schools, girls' schools, private schools, and even disadvantaged groups would come up, and also the church groups, like I said. They would all come up and uh, use the place like a retreat center. So the boys... Would 40 of them from her middle school would be in this log cabin where the girls would be down in the big house in, in bunk beds. They were everywhere when we got here. The place was a mess, okay? And we've restored it you one really building have. at a time. Yeah. Six buildings in a barn. It's beautiful. And so we're working. Uh, we haven't rebuilt the barn yet, but we will. It's on our site plan, and it's going to be built after we finish the interior of Entheon. Tell me more about Entheon. 
our Entheon. It is our uh, visionary uh, sanctuary, a visionary art. It's um, a place to discover God within. It's uh, a three-story, 12,000-square-foot oh. exhibition area this time, showing the iconic originals of visionary artists internationally. We'll have an annual rotating show of visionary art uh, from around the world. And then Alex and my work will take up the second and third floor of the three floors until we build the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors in the Meadow, which Wait. is our next project. Oh, I, the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors is not going to be inside of Entheon? Chapel of Sacred Mirrors will be temporarily inside of Entheon. That that uh, location that you saw that is there now will probably be maintained for at least another five to 10 years while we finish the exterior of Entheon. We have to wrap the building in sculpture. That's a $1.5 million project that we're going to raise the money for. And we've already started because we have the steeple head and the doors. The doors, as, as you mentioned to me during the tour, are 700 pounds Bronze. Each. No, each. There's two each. of them. Yeah, they are four by eight foot uh, bronze sculpted doors that are coming to us from Thailand. That Alex did these large drawings. His drawing was scanned and then sculpted and then made into a, a mold and cast into bronze. So it's really from Alex's sculpture computer sculpture, that you have this bronze. And did Alex, in his description of it, originally say they need to be 700 pounds? Otherwise, no. we really we can't that's do the, this? That's the lightest they could be and be sturdy as we need them to be. They're going to be attached to, to you know, regulation metal doors. So you get the doors and you just attach the bronze to them. So describe to me the vision of this building of Entheon from the okay. outside. Well, it's a, it's a building that's wrapped with heads, they're like an interconnected net of faces. It's a visionary facade of, of all religions are one. In each forehead, there is the symbol of a sacred path or tradition. So there's 30 traditions represented there, but they represent the infinitude of sacred paths to the one. And the one is the steeplehead at the top. And there's going to be dragons, snake dragons that go up the roof, and there's going to be, you know, corner angels. And so far, the sculptures that have been funded by wonderful and incredible donors are the steeplehead, which we visioned into being first by making all these little toys of the steeplehead. And then people buy them. And then the first sculpture that was funded was the steeplehead. Gorgeous. And then there's the Creating a Better World uh, Doors. That's the name of Alex's uh, drawing, and that became a sculpture that became the doors. And then there is the Soul Birds, the two Soul Birds that were, so, that were uh, funded by Alex's inheritance. Alex's parents gave him, left him some money, and he put it towards two Soul Birds. His parents, Jane and Walt, they're sitting as our guardians on either side of the center campus doors. And then we have a gate. We have the angel gate. The truth of it is, Alex and I have been building and making things for the temple even before we had the land. We started making the, the, the frames for the sacred mirrors in 1985. They're 10 and a half feet tall, and there are 21 of them. They're, you know, some of them are over 
300 pounds, you know. So we started making the interior and the, and the prayer wheel that, will, you'll, that you'll turn when you come in the registration desk. We made that before we had the land. We built that, you know, we, we sculpted a prayer wheel for the interior of Entheon. So we've been thinking about this for a long time. And when you can't, when you can't afford to do what you want to do, you just do what you can afford to do. What, what, what can you afford to do? And then you do that. Well, that's how you start. But then also you have this vision, right. which we were talking about. We were looking at the building before, and Alex is going, this is just so insane. What we're doing is insane. Why are we doing this insane thing? Because it's so big. I, I, he talks like that, I know. But that's because it's his desire to do it. It's our gift. It's your desire. Yes. To really you realize know, it, realize it, to turn Absolutely. the screws. I'm very grateful for all that I've learned from all of the people and all the leaders that have taught me to have the skills that I have. Alex and I have very, we blend our skills. I, there's no way this would happen without Alex because Alex is such an incredible attraction. His work is an attraction. You, we knew that because people were ringing our doorbell and knocking on our door before the full moon ceremonies began. We had people coming from all over the world. I'm in Denmark, Venezuela, you know, Sao Paulo. I'm here from Venezuela. Could I come and see the art? Bzz, bzz, wow. At your door. In, in Brooklyn. Brooklyn. All the time. Every week, all the time. So we knew when we, when, when we thought of doing the full moon ceremonies that we could do like a monthly open house and people would really like it. So you already had people showing up, yeah. Well, we didn't let anybody in. Oh, okay, we'd be nice, but it's nice to know that people are interested. I couldn't do that, no? but I felt like if we had a, a format for it, right? People loved his work so much they really wanted to come in and see it. So how? So to go from the, what you were doing there to like, okay, you've got a, a floor in this club space, then to have this extraordinary vision that's so ambitious. We fell that. into it. You know, when we got here and we saw this place with six buildings in a barn, we knew that if we could make it habitable, which it was very uninhabitable, we, we had our certificate of occupancy taken away from every building before, was, before we moved in. So we had to make every building habitable and it was a great investment. And we had to keep the full moons going while we didn't even have a place in the city. There was some heavy bleeding period and we had lots of friends that helped us. I don't want to say that we did it on our own, but I, I will say that Alex and I have become, we became instantaneously volunteers. All the money that we made for everything, that means travel, speaking, and all that, went back into Cosm. We became volunteers. It's, it's the way to be because we live here. How are you with a hammer? Well, Alex and I built two lofts together really with our own hands. I, I was very handy in those days and lived on my own and rebuilt my the interior of my beautiful little apartment before I met Alex. But we did build that loft in uh, Boston first together. Hung the walls, framed them, you know, got the compressor. Anyway, then we bought we built a loft in uh, Brooklyn and then we built the lo the big 12,000 square feet in Manhattan by using the skills of others. We started to contract out, but we co contracted it ourselves. And then this place, which we have a great team. We have our, our head builder, Brian James, who's been with us for 10 years, mm -hmm. doing every building, front to back, beginning to end, including a foreclosure next door that we bought. <sighs> yeah, it's the closest building house to our, and our staff lives wow. here. We had to rebuild it, though. 
was a <sighs> foreclosure. It was a mess. But then you also... And we, we have had... a building team that lives here. So Actually lives on the grounds. Well, Brian eventually moved out. He has two children and a wife now. After, you know, in the 10-year period he's been here, he, you know, but he did live here but for you, about you the first keep, five, six years. Your team tends to stick around. You've had a number of people working with you for a long time. And now people are, tend not to want to leave because they see the temple coming and they just do their darndest. They're doing such a great job. But so you, this is like family for you. Oh, we eat at least a couple meals a day together, yeah. They are wonderful, and my family extends beyond people who live here. You know, some of us don't live here, too. Some of the people who work here don't live here, but I want that to be, I want that to become more of what happens. You know, we didn't have anybody living, well, we had one caretaker living at Cosm in the city. And then you do events, and you do ceremony, and things here. Yes, we have full moons, we have new moons, we have equinoxes, solstices, the deities and demons masquerade ball, and art church. Art church every month. You can look it up. It's the most wonderful, intimate. We did it yesterday. It was Sunday. We did art church. We we uh, do it once a month. It's an art. It's like take a mini class with Alex and I. That's basically what it is. It's very low tech, and we talk, and we make art together, and we listen to music, and we have a theme. So yesterday's theme, for instance, was the Mission of Art, which is Alex's second book. And so we have a PowerPoint about that, we discuss the mission of art, and uh, like the art of goodwill and the art of bad will, bad propaganda and bad advertising, that kind of thing. But we talk about all that stuff, the and mission so, of art. And so Entheon is going to hold space for a permanent collection of your work, presentation of your work. That's right. Entheon right. will have uh, a, a some of my key pieces and some of Alex's most beloved work, about 70 or 80 of our pieces upstairs in the second and third floor. And it'll have dozens of works by visionary artists in both the visionary vine, which is the four-story uh, staircase that's going to have visionary art all the way up, and the all-one gallery of the international visionary art movement, which is, you know, maybe 15 of, of the greatest iconic originals that we can get a hold of. So what is visionary art to you when you think of that term? Well, for me, visionary art is art that was inspired by the psychedelic experience. There's really, that's really what it is for me. Although I know that, that cave people did visionary art, I think they also were inspired by the psychedelic experience. I do believe the cave people took mushrooms and were inspired uh, by maybe even uh, cannabis too. So I don't know. I think the visionary experience can come from meditation and holotropic breath work and other ways as well. So I don't want to eliminate those possibilities. But for me, it came from the psychedelic experience and always has. And my art is a direct honoring of that experience. So how does your work come from your psychedelic experience? In uh, 1971, when I read the uh, Ram Dass's book, Be Here Now, I had been tripping at that point for, you know, already maybe three years in, in a lot of experimental situations, you know, where I was transforming and learning, but no, no way a spiritual setting. And Ram Dass really, you know, put, you know proposed uh, tripping 
on a high dose in a spiritual setting, like a sentence setting where your mind was quiet and you were going inward in a dark room, uh, maybe some spiritual music. And reading that book in 1971 and then tripping under those conditions, really with the intention of seeing the white light as he described, I did have uh, immediate transformation from an agnostic Jew politico to a full-blown mystic, really. I mean, one, I, one experience, one, first, but, first and it time. wasn't my first experience at all. Okay, my first experience was when I was seventeen, and I was tripping, and I was climbing mountains, and I was going camping, and I was going bicycling, and I was dancing to Led Zeppelin, and uh, and I was going to see Two Thousand One: A Space Odyssey, and that kind of stuff I would do, and I'd have fun, and I and I really changed, and I really was preparing myself, I believe, for the experience of that inward journey, which was totally transformative. But the first time you sat. In the right set and setting. That's right. Lay with on my L- bed. LSD yep. or LSD. LSD. A great, and great dose. I would think it was probably Orange Sunshine. Uh huh. Do you remember my how friends, much? Nick Sands, and those people that made it? Awesome. I, I got it directly from their hands, Ooh. not from their hands, but passed through many hands to a person who did not know them until way later in my life. But those are the people that made the LSD that I took when I was so young. You yes. thanked them when you met them. Oh God, yes. I, I I was in the hot tub with Nick Sands. I mean, you know, I I I, uh, I definitely thanked him very much. I was glad to know <laughs> the man. Really. So um, so the question I had, yeah. which I almost said, I think, was, but the first time you sat with the intention of seeing that light with the orange sunshine. You got it. Well, here's what I got. I got that, yeah, this is what everybody's calling God. Here it is. It's the it's the, the light that penetrates all beings and things and, and washing over all surfaces. What I could see was secret writing. So I was seeing secret writing washing all over the walls and the, me and everything. And I did my art about it. I made my master's thesis about sacred secret, writing. Sacred writing or secret writing? Both, both. Secret and sacred. It's secret from everyone. It's like, it's the ineffable. It's the language of creative expression that is inexpressible and nameless. You can't put a, it's not a face. It, it, it describes all that is sacred. Do you recognize the letters? I started writing the letters as best as I could. And I have examples of that. That will be in my show. And then I started well, printing Well, no, more than that. I have a little one that I got from the cafe, like an, a little sculpture of one, uh, a piece yes. of wood. And I, it's gorgeous. And I, and I t- give them away to people and I say, make it mean something if you want to. I mean, if you want to, you can put it on your altar and you can give it a meaning, your own meaning, whatever you want it to mean. And then it becomes like a sigil. So these are letters that you've yes. kind of, these are figures well, that you- after that I, I did the secret writing from, you know, for the first, I would say six months, I started doing it. I decided I wanted to do books. I wanted to print it. So I had to create an alphabet. So out of those infinite letters, I made 20 letters. I selected 20 letters, a recurrent, often found letters that were the simplest pared down in certain groupings, there were vowels, but anyway, they 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 became the letters that I use now for forty five years, and commitment really is a palpable art medium in my work because I'm a I'm a conceptual mixed media artist. You see, 
the commitment that I was given by LSD, by, by my psychedelic experience, was that chaos, the symbol of chaos, order plus entropy, you know, you make order, systems falling apart, that's chaos. Order, which is the, all the light is interpenetrating and it's interpenetrating everything, vistas, the vast vistas of fountains and drains of light, it's love, that's order. And I have a symbol for that, and I created a symbol for that, order. Chaos, there's a symbol for that. And secret writing. So there's chaos, order, and there's secret writing. You know, secret writing is the place where thoughts become things. The inner world of order, of, of, of the realms of the unpronounceable, become things through symbols. You know, you talk through symbols, your hair is a symbol. My earrings are symbols, whatever. And they're, they're all symbols that are read by others through their own personal filters, whatever they, their life, you know, gray hair means one thing to you and something else to someone else. Anyway, that is the meaning behind chaos, order, and secret writing. And it was gifted to me in my psychedelic experience as the theme of my oeuvre, mm -hmm. the oeuvre of my art. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like an, it's almost like an alien language. There's something about, you have the sense of this otherworldliness. When so people look at it and you ask them, what does it, what does it say to them? They will say that. They will also say that it looks sacred. It looks important. It looks like language. It looks like letters. That's it. That's it. The expression is individual. It's like if you were to take one of those letters and give it a meaning, your meaning and then put it on your altar next to your candle and your, and your incense and your crystal and your pyramid. You put it right there in your altar and it means something to you. I don't even know what it means, but you do. And then every time you see it on your altar, it may be an intention. It may be something that you learned when you were here in my life. I don't know, but whatever it is, it can be anything and it can be yours. And uh, it's a gift, that's what a gift is. So it's like, almost as if it's it's a language that you are the conduit for. I'm the conduit for, yeah. Like you're channeling it. Well, is that, it's is that my language though. You could have a secret language. Everyone has a secret language. This is mine. See, everyone has a secret language. It's the way we choose to look every day. It's the way we speak. It's the, you know, do we do we sound intelligent? Do we do sound like we have a big Southern drawl? Like, who are we? It's the way we portray ourselves. It's the way we make art. It's the way we, you know, everything that's a thought that comes out of us becomes a thing. It's beautiful. And you've been working with us for so many years developing such a rich body of life. I know everything seems related to it in my in my world since I spend hours every day practicing practicing my my uh, meditation my art meditation that I created it's an it's, art meditation it's gorgeous thank you so much What happens when you live your entire life as a work of art? And when you conceive of your art as a way of being in service to others, put your heart at the center of what you do 
and it encourages you to follow your intuition, your own special radar, rather than the predictable, safe, rational path that society programs you to follow. When you take that intuitive, artful path to benefit not only yourself, but a community who share your vision and values, magic can take place. And Cosm is a wonderful example of that visionary spark in action. To learn more about Cosm and the building of Entheon, visit Cosm.org. That's uh, C-O-S-M, Cosm.org. I want to thank Allison Gray for being a guest on the podcast. And I want to thank you for joining us. If you like what we're doing here, please let other folks know through social media. Post reviews on iTunes and other places. You can send us an email too. Love to hear from you. Really helpful to get feedback and thoughts from folks. It's at theevolver at evolver.net. You can follow us on Instagram at The Evolver Podcast and on Facebook at Evolver Social Movement. Remember to subscribe to The Evolver on iTunes, Google Play, Acast. I want to thank our producer, Jose Alfaro, and the Acast team. Our theme music is Measure by Measure by Paul D. Miller, a.k.a. DJ Spooky, from his album The Secret Song. And our interstitial music are tracks by The Human Experience, Suno from the album Soul Visions with Rising Appalachia, and here for a moment on the album Gone, Gone Beyond. Please check them out. That's all for now. We'll be back next week. Find the others. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com.